The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let's approach these questions by listening together for God's word as it echoes to us from a fairly intense story found in Mark chapter nine, beginning with the 14th verse. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him immediately, it threw the boy into convulsions and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he was able to stand. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think a lot about faith. It's my job, or maybe I have this job because I think a lot about faith. It's a chicken and egg thing. To be clear though, I don't have faith all figured out. Mostly, I ask a lot of questions about it. What is faith? Where does it come from? How do you know when you have it, really have it? You would think 
that the answers to these questions would be easy, especially for a pastor. After all, to be religious is to have faith. The good book tells story after story about people who have faith. Scripture holds faith in high regard. It, it describes faith as a potent thing. If you have faith, Jesus says, you can move mountains. If you have faith, you will be made whole. If you have faith, you can resist evil forces that threaten to destroy those you love. You, you can cast out demons. It's not good works that will save you, writes the Apostle Paul. It is grace through faith. Gotta have singer George Martin, Michael Croons, faith, faith, faith. What is faith? As a young person, I understood faith to be a series of propositions. It was the Apostles' Creed committed to memory. It was being able to repeat snippets of belief without flinching. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Yes, check. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Yes, check. To me, faith was what a person needed to demonstrate when, when God would suddenly stand and, and start writing on life's chalkboard. Okay, students, close your books, take out a clean sheet of paper, keep your eyes on your own desk. This is a pop quiz. Question number one, do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. I do, yes, I certainly hope so. For a long time, I thought faith was knowing the tradition, repeating the catechism, being ready to ace the ultimate test. I still think faith needs to be connected to tradition, committed to wrestling with the beliefs of those who have gone on before, to avoid narcissism and, and solipsism, we must contemplate stories and creeds and songs that we didn't make up ourselves. Faith ought to be an encounter with something old and odd, traditions and practices that test us and stretch us. Tradition is a big part of faith, but there's more to it. There's more to faith than knowing the catechism and being prepared to jot down the right answers. In today's passage from the Gospel of Mark, the disciples have been trying to cast out a demon, and they've not been successful. Their failed attempts draw a crowd of people and a few critics, and the disciples get into a spat with a few of these local religious types. Scripture doesn't say what the argument was about, but personally, I picture them arguing about the proper techniques for conducting an exorcism. First, you anoint someone's head with oil, and then you walk in a circle around them singing Psalm 23. No, 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 no. First, you sing Psalm 100, and then you make a poultice out of mud and smear it on the person's forehead. Well, of course, they probably weren't arguing about technique at all. Chances are their dispute was focused on whether it was even possible for the demons to, for the disciples to cast out a demon. Whatever the dust up, Jesus senses tension in the air. 
Arriving on the scene, he asks, what are you arguing about? Before the disciples can respond, a man speaks up. I, uh, I brought my boy to see your followers. My son is afflicted by a malevolent spirit. It will not allow him to speak. It dashes him violently to the ground. My son needs help, and your disciples have been no help, no help at all. Jesus looks at the man, looks at the disciples, looks at the local religious leaders, looks at the crowd, looks at all of these onlookers and arguers and sighs. You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? It's a pretty harsh takedown. After surveying his own followers, clergy from the neighborhood, the eager crowd, Jesus pronounces the entire generation to be faithless. The whole scene reminds me of the new Snickers candy bar marketing campaign. You're not yourself when you're hungry, have a Snickers. Come on, Jesus, did you eat breakfast this morning? Are these people really all that faithless? Surely some of these folks can say the catechism. Are you honestly worried that everyone here is going to fail God's pop quiz? In an article in the April edition of the Atlantic magazine, I know it's March, but April's issue is already out, Shadi Hamid talks about sweeping faithlessness in this country. His piece is entitled, America Without God. Hamid's basic argument is that today's political partisans battle against each other using religious categories. We accuse each other of sin. We excommunicate those who don't agree with us. We shun and shame those we've judged morally wrong. We lift up martyrs and cheer newly minted messianic figures. Ironically, though, Hamid argues, this is all happening without God. Oh, people pay lip service to God, but there's precious little sign in the contemporary political world of the humility and wonder and awe that comes when true believers stand in the presence of God. This is what Hamid says. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. Religion without religion. Is that what Jesus sees when he encounters all sorts of religious people standing in the street arguing about a failed exorcism? The folk in today's story have passionately held opinions. They engage in ferocious disputation, but they do not, Jesus contends, have faith. There's no evidence that they actually trust in a higher power, in a cosmic force working for good in their midst. They manifest no sense of wonder. There's no breath-catching mystery here. All we see are hard-headed humans banging heads with other hard-headed humans. Now this, of course, doesn't surprise us. Uh, 
we know that faith without passion, without reverence, without prayers on your knees is possible. It's actually pretty common. Cynicism and bitterness and apathy can carve away at our spirits, leave us with a, a go-through-the-motions religion. It's not unusual for this precious thing, faith, this elusive virtue that once animated us with a sort of childlike thrill to atrophy, to become mean-spirited and ugly. In our story, Jesus snarls at this sort of hollowed-out faith. Then he demands, bring me the boy. A man leads the child over. This father starts to recite the list of, of all the things that are wrong with this boy. He, he runs down this list of ailments like he's done it a million times, which, of course, he has. He's recited this list to relatives and healers and other supposedly wise souls. From childhood, it's cast him into the fire and, and into the water to destroy him. But, but if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Still in a bad mood, please someone get this guy a Snickers bar. Jesus sounds almost sarcastic in response. If you are able? If? If you are able? What part of faithless generation don't you people understand? All things can be done for the one who believes. Our Lord grumps, and something, some flicker of possibility awakens in the father of the child. He cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Roman Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor called this verse the most natural and most human and most agonizing prayer in the Gospels. It is, O'Connor went on to say, the foundational prayer of faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. O'Connor is, I think, right. There's something natural humanizing and agonizing about this prayer. We feel the Father's heartache. We recognize his predicament. He's at that point, that, that point not far under the skin of most parents where you will say anything, do anything, try anything to save your child. A few years ago, on New Year's Eve, our youngest, Oliver, began to feel poorly. We took him to Lenox Hospital, and before we knew it, he had been diagnosed with acute appendicitis. His appendix needed to come out, we were told, immediately. Amy, my wife, was calm and cool. I also was calm and cool not. Why can't we get a second opinion? What kind of surgical team, I wondered aloud, is available on New Year's Eve? 
Eventually, three doctors showed up to explain the procedure, and two of them looked like teenagers. I tried to convey to the surgeon and her team with my intense stare and penetrating questions just how important this child was, how, how precious he was. In fact, I think I said exactly that as they walked out the door. He's precious to us, you know. They nodded and left the room. Then I turned my attention to God. I prayed one of the many imperfect prayers I've prayed in this life. I believe in you, God. I believe you can see my boy through this, but I don't like this. I'm re really worried about this. I'm not willing to trust this child to anybody else. Nobody else could love him like I do. Unless it might be you. Is it you? He's precious to you too, right? And there my soul teetered. For the next four hours, my heart balanced on some impossibly narrow edge, wavering between wanting the answers given by our faith to be true and not completely trusting them, not being willing to, to bet everything on them and yet having no other choice, not really. I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes people confess to me the ways in which they feel like their faith doesn't measure up. I recently had an officer of this church quietly admit that he was pretty sure that he did not feel the presence of God in his life in the same way that he was confident other officers and members of the church felt it. All these people sense God in their lives, but, but I'm not sure that I do. I keep waiting for it to happen, waiting to be overwhelmed, waiting to be certain. You, you probably, pastor, think this is terrible. He trailed off. I, I didn't think it was terrible at all. I, I loved his candor, his honesty. Uh, ironically, our conversation felt sacred. I assured him that he wasn't alone, which is true. And I wish I would have said one more thing to him. I wish I would have suggested that he read today's story, that he try praying the prayer nested in today's text. I believe. Help my unbelief. My friend, the Reverend Thomas R. Jr., pastor of Village Presbyterian Church in Kansas City, ends every one of his sermons with the prayer uttered by the Father we meet in the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel. I texted him this past week, how long have you been doing that? Tom responded, about 30 years. 30 years? Sunday after Sunday, acknowledging the precarious nature of faith, the delicate balance of belief and unbelief, belief and doubt, belief and uncertainty that dance on a razor's edge in every soul. Tom is a wise person. I don't think you need to be holding the hand of a sick child to identify with the father in today's story. You might feel unmoored 
by a job loss. You might feel lonely and just plain lost in life. You might feel that your faith, whatever tiny imperfect grain of faith remains in your heart, has been utterly ravaged by circumstance, pummeled by this pandemic, and ground down by family brokenness. If, if faith to you feels foolish and risky, childish and vulnerable, you get it. You understand the Father in today's passage. Often the faith that we see on display in Mark's gospel is, is wavering and desperate and imperfect. It has just enough chutzpah to say to God, this is probably crazy, but what I want more than anything from you from whatever good there is in the universe is, is this thing, this healing, this job, this possibility, this freedom from demons. I trust you, God, and I don't trust you. I'm wavering. I need your help. I need your help not succumbing to the unbelieving side of me. This is the Father's prayer. He doesn't manifest certainty, absolute trust, or clear answers. He's honest and vulnerable and open, or at least striving to be open to the possibility that some deride as delusional. His heart craves this possibility, but his head questions it. It questions the prospect of there being a God above, a God who cares, a God who wants to help, who sees this boy as precious. I want you to tip me into the deep waters of belief, praise the Father. And this is faith enough, more than enough. Religion without faith like that will inevitably devolve into meaningless squabbles it will pull sighs upon sighs from our Lord's lungs. But religion that can pray this prayer, that can make this uncertain but eager plea, that can risk putting the heart's yearning for deliverance out there, well, that sort of faith might actually make a difference. It might move mountains, save souls. It might do all sorts of religious stuff that is so casually mocked, but so desperately needed by this cranky old world. Bless you on the journey of Lent. Dare to believe and to pray for your unbelief. Have courage, hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen.